Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to sunny London. My name is Simon Mills. I'm a senior associate at the Zien Group. I'd like to welcome you all today to today's FS Club webinar, where we're going to be discussing No More Dead Polar Bears, Art for Sustainability Engagement. I'm joined by Susan Israel, the founder of Climate Creatives, which engages people on sustainability topics through participatory public art and experiences. As always, the agenda for this webinar is very simple. Following my introduction, Susan is going to make her presentation and then we're going to move on to the question and answer session. I'm afraid that you're all muted, but you are able to submit your questions to Susan through the chat tool to the right of your screen. Please do chip in at any point of the proceedings. I'm going to be collating your questions and I'm going to put them to Susan at the end. As with all of our FS Club webinars, we're going to be recording this session and you're going to be able to access Susan's slides and presentation at a later date. Before we move on, I really must thank FS Club members who've opened up our webinar series to the public. With their help since March of 2020, we have nearly 400 of these events on topics as diverse as money laundering, the metaverse and high salinity agriculture. The FS Club is the premier global executive knowledge network for technology and finance, where members and their guests can meet over a glass of wine to debate key issues which impact on financial services, technology and society. Very much like a 21st, cent 21st century version of the city's 17th century coffee houses. And so, without further ado, I'd like to introduce today's speaker, Susan Israel. Susan, please tell us about Art for Sustainability Engagement. Hi, Simon. Thank you very much for that introduction and for inviting me to the FS Club and uh, to Peter and Michael Minnelli as well and all of you for coming uh, next. So we're seeing a lot of images like this from uh, journalists and from scientists, and we have been for the past 10 years, uh, trying to engage people on climate. And it has not been effective. And in fact, recently there's been a, a lot of dialogue about how to communicate. Um, and, it, it, you know, we've kind of, I've watched everybody transition from in the beginning to denial, um, and there's still some denial. It's like, oh, it's Australia, it's Africa, you know, they're really far away. It's just two continents, they're down there, way down there below the equator. But then we have these fires in California and the floods in Germany and the heat waves in Europe, and all of a sudden people are feeling like, oh my gosh, this is really going to affect me. And we're now transitioning over to the other side of denial, which is this problem is so huge and scary, there's nothing I can do about it. Um, the other argument that people keep saying is that it's too expensive to act on it. Next. So fortunately, industry is getting on board with making climate commitments and the financial industry has really ramped things up um, in the past few years. It's become a growing movement. This is a, 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 a graphic from the United Nations Global Compact where organizations are making climate commitments and just a, a shout out for Greenfin, um, which is in New York this week. And that's a, a, a great uh, gathering of different organizations um, at, through GreenViz. Um, and the good news is a lot of banks and financial institutions are getting on board with making commitments. Now the, the UN commitments, as you probably know, are woefully inadequate and far below what needs to be done. But the thought in the climate community is that 
you need to get people on board, um, engaging them in the idea that they have to make commitments, and then you can ratchet up those commitments later. And so that engagement piece is really important as a first step next. And so why does engagement matter? Um, we're basically asking people to make a moonshot. We have uh, really, we need to have super ambitious ESG goals and policies, and that's going to require everybody to get where we need to get. Um, and when I say everybody, I mean everybody. I don't just mean that companies have to set the agenda and they have to decide that they're going to make these goals and then send a message down to the company because what happens with that is somebody says, oh, this is this is a new thing in addition to the job that I already have to do where I'm already behind and I'll do it tomorrow and I'll do it next month, I'll do it next quarter, and the next thing you know, it's next year and, and the commitments are missed. And so um, people have to be personally committed to it to really want to, uh, to tackle it in addition to what they're already doing. Plus, they also know their own role and responsibility, whether that's at work or at home. They know the low-hanging fruit. They know how to plan for changes in the future. And when you bring everybody into the pool and everybody thinking together and working together, you get some synergy and uh, you get some exponential impact. And you can see from my math why I'm, in the, I'm not in the financial industry. Um, okay, next. So who needs to be engaged? Um, this is a wicked problem. And uh, that's a term of art that comes from Boston where we have um, in very, very local colloquial speak, uh, wicked is really good or really big. So it's wicked hot, it's wicked hot, you're wicked smart. And that's been actually integrated into, I know Harvard Business School is using it in a lot of other places, systems thinking problems, which are so large and so difficult that um, when you, you can't really have a solution, you, you have to do a lot of modeling, but when you push something in one place, then something happens in some other place. And so since we're talking about systems thinking and sy systems problems, you need to have everybody. So in this industry, that's investors and board members and strategic partners, the management team, all of the employees, and even your clients and customers, your supply chain communities, policymakers. And I spoke to the head of sustainability at Bank of America. He said that they're going to have ESG requirements for their commercial clients, their commercial customers moving forward. So it really is the whole ecosystem. Next. And uh, so how is this being done? Next. Well, everybody has an ESG department, so they're all writing a report. Next. They send the report out to everybody. Next. And then they have a meeting because nobody read the email, next. And then they have a training because that training is really gonna be the thing that makes people understand what to do, next. And then it doesn't hurt to scare everybody. And so we're seeing a lot of these images and I can't even look at this, but you know, I, I gotta say, is all that working? That is the industry standard up to this point of, of how to connect people. Uh, so next. Looking at all of that, um, over 10 years ago, I said, there's a lot of data, nobody cares about the data, 
uh, I had been an architect for 20 years and over 20 years and made the switch to climate work. And I said, this, is, this isn't going to go anywhere. Nobody's using these solutions. We've got to reach people in a completely different way. And given my background in art and design, I decided that that way would be through public art and through exper art experiences. Next. So we're a consultancy next and so we go into companies and different organizations and all different sectors and work with them for bespoke projects and um, we're mission driven we're for, for profit i believe in uh, doing well by doing good um, it's a high impact and scalable model that we're using and that we've developed over 12 years of experimenting with things and we've reached over half a million people on site plus who knows how many digital impressions because we don't collect them. We believe in going to where people are. So rather than trying to attract people to you for your message, you've got to go where they are and talk to them in a way that they can hear you and give them tools that they can use. And so we've worked with over 140 diverse partners uh, in all different sectors, in, including internationally. And this picture on the right is a, a young boy in Guniala, which is the San Blas Islands off of Panama in the Caribbean Sea. It's an archipelago of coral atolls that are barely above water level. And in less than 20 years, they will be uninhabitable. So we went there, did the installation with the community, did some workshops for the kids, spoke to the, interviewed the elders to collect stories of people on site, and then brought that back to the United Nations to talk about uh, these island nations. Next. Uh, but primarily what we do is um, at the moment we're working with organizations. We bring these experiential art programs to them. And it's, uh, there's, there's always um, education embedded in the engagement itself. And so we can do bespoke workshops for the leadership or the entire team. We, can, we have a scalable model. We sometimes we consult just to embed sustainability culture. It can be within one organization or multiple organizations or uh, between two partnerships, as I said, in all sectors. We also do the other half of the company is this public outreach and data communications using public art. And so we do that with community participation and our topics are related to climate issues with flooding, heat, renewable energy, air quality, and can be uh, permanent or uh, ephemeral. It can be as short as one day or a few months. And we also do some work with um, universities and K through 12. Next. And so how do we do this? Um, it's a creative process. They're basically mini design studios. And so we set up a challenge. Uh, we give people uh, a problem to solve and put them in small groups and give them some creative materials to work with. The solution has to be created in built form, even if it's not a built form solution. So it could be a service or an app um, or a process, but they have to represent it in built form because that gets them to a finish point. So instead of walking out with a fistful of post-its, you've actually come to a complete idea with next steps and a plan to go forward. The process itself, we break people into small teams. And so it's very relational. You're working in community and um, you're solving a problem. So even though we've set it up in the beginning with a discussion about the problem, you're learning about some solutions, you're coming up with more solutions with your group, and that gives you a feeling of hope and agency, um, which is really essential in 
dealing with such a um, really an existential problem. And so everybody walks out really happy. It's a very joyful experience. Next. Um, there's also some science which, uh, which says that that experience of having that positive experience when you're grappling with the data translates to your ability to learn about it. So the messaging that we use uh, for um, everything, regardless of what the kind of event is, is that it must be positive, actionable, relevant, compelling, and simple. And what does that mean? It means it's quick. Don't make anybody work for it. When you look at it, it relates to you, whoever the you is, because at the end of the day, human beings are very self-oriented. Um, it has to be relevant to what to their lives, otherwise they're not going to care about it. Nobody cares about, you know, we did that whole project about Guniyala, and I'm thinking nobody really cares about somebody who lives on these islands, but a few people care, and the United Nations cares. Um, it has to be compelling, but we filter it through the art so that it's not flattening like the images that I showed you earlier. Um, and there has to be an action. Don't send people home without something to do. Otherwise, who cares? Next. Uh, so um, next, we work inside organizations um, in different ways. Uh, and for different purposes, but basically we can work, we do, we do these workshops around either setting or reaching ESG goals about setting uh, sustainability culture, deepening that in the organization for their climate and resiliency planning. We do visioning sessions. Um, it's great for inclusion and diversity because it really flattens the hierarchy and it opens up communications. People get out of their silos, whether they're work silos or personal silos. It's really the ideas that have uh, currency and not title and other factors just kind of fade away as people try to solve a problem in a small group. Um, we've used it for public health and various climate client topics. And it's a great Trojan horse if you have a cold audience. We did it at Harvard Business School for the first years, about 10 years ago. It was a very cold audience. Half the professors at that time didn't believe in climate change. Fortunately, they've moved uh, very far ahead from there but um so we had them design a sculpture that generated renewable energy and was layered on with um, other messaging um and it can be used for launches setting goals and aligning the team next and it's extremely engaging and extremely fun the benefits of it are basically the same benefits that you get from team building so you could also be sort of flipped on its head that it's brought in as a team building Everyone's gonna to get together and feel really great, but instead of rowing or rope climbing or you know, splatter art or whatever it is you do, there's content that's embedded in the process. And so again, it could be kind of a Trojan horse either way. Um, just talk, I'll talk a minute about this picture on the right, which is um, we worked with some schools in Hong Kong and I trained the students remotely. And then I went there while they did the installation and worked with training other teachers and other schools and workshops with the students. Um, it's a really great story about these two students because they went on to, uh, to graduate, go to university, they've committed themselves to climate work, and they said the experience of doing this art installation is what cemented their commitment to climate work. Um, and even in Hong Kong, where it's pretty tough to be doing it. Next. 
So uh, my mantra before COVID was hands-on, face-to-face, everybody has to get back in the same room together. And then COVID hit and we had projects around the world and one week everything got canceled. So we developed a way of working remotely, which is very useful now. Um, instead of working in um, built form, we work in images. It's the same exact process. We use breakout rooms to put people, again, all of the same principles of working together in small groups. And these are just some examples of things that we did at Boston College. They had a, a public health um, conference going on. And so there's nutrition, global nutrition, uh, mental health going around clockwise, water scarcity, and sea level rise. Next. So that's a way that we can do the same exact process remotely. And then we also, the other leg of the company is the outreach and the connection back to industry is through sponsorship. Next. And so companies can help communities um, supporting them in their climate adaptation work. The biggest project that we've done to date is Rising Waters. We've done it um, in over 35 installations in three countries and have developed a scalable model using it. It's a flood warning project that shows where the water will be in the future. You can see the dates on the column there. That's exactly where the water will be under certain scenarios. And um, again, what I said about showing the data and having it be compelling, you can kind of measure that with your body, but it's not as, as I will say, disagreeable as looking at pictures waiting, of people wading through flood water. And so we did this in Broward County, which is Florida, not the epicenter of um, climate change awareness, but Broward County school system is pretty fantastic. So there was a summit for 800 students. We installed this at the Museum of Discovery and Science in Fort Lauderdale and gave them some trainings. And then they ordered the materials and they did 16 installations without us next. And so that's the scalable model that we're using um, for all of our projects. And then this is around Buzzards Bay. You may recognize the name or you may not of Martha's Vineyard, the NIMBY project that killed our first offshore wind project because people didn't want to look at something on the horizon. So we have 15 organizations around Buzzards Bay who are looking for a corporate sponsor to do um, this large scale installation next. And we also tie everything to a sort of a do one thing uh, action campaign because it's so important to get people to uh, feel like they have something to do if you if you can't send people home empty-handed so to speak um, so uh, this is a piece of data communications art that is being installed in Braintree Massachusetts this month and it's on a coastal bank it's tied to a green infrastructure project where they're putting a berm around a playing field to pr protect it from floodwaters. And um, in 2070, the predict well, when the water gets to the top of the sculpture in 2070, which I think will happen much sooner, they're going to take the berm out and turn it into wetlands. And so this is being used as a piece of community outreach and data communications and participation through a citizen science project where people will photograph the sculpture over time and show the water levels rising and that will be collected by the city website. Um, next. So I know I left something out because I'm about two and a half minutes ahead of where I wanted to be but um, we can we can uh, straighten that out in the Q&A and um, 
everybody will have my email and I welcome any kind of um, conversations after the fact, but I'm looking forward to having a, a nice conversation with you right now with Simon leading it. Thank you. Fantastic, Susan. That was absolutely fascinating. As chairman, I'm going to take the privilege of asking uh, the first question. Susan, you're an architect by background, which is a rare breed because your training spans both arts and sciences. Now, all the scientists that I know play musical instruments, they paint or sing, or they're into amateur dramatics, but very few artists actually dabble in astronomy or, or particle physics, physics on, the, on the side. Indeed, in the UK, many people in the arts seem to pride themselves on their complete ignorance of, of science or maths. In using art to communicate a complex topic such as climate change, how do you actually ensure that its scientific foundations remain intact? That's a great question because it's really important to me that uh, the science is intact and I've struggled a little bit with um, rising waters. Do we make this just an open project and we let people use it and um, without us as an intermediary? And I haven't because I don't want them to go around putting lines in the wrong places because it will then destroy the value of the entire project. It will discredit it. So it's really important to me that the science be correct. So I work with scientists. Sometimes I work with professors directly. Um, I do the research on the meta level. Um, Climate Central is my favorite first stop for looking at flood modeling. And it, it's now it's worldwide. It's a fantastic site and it's run by NASA. I make sure that my sources are are impeccable. So um, NASA has a lot of really great uh, data, and and then what I'll do, I'll take it at the at, at sort of the first cut, and but I will always go to the local resources. So when I was in Hong Kong, I went to the Hong Kong, um, uh, the astronomy, get the exact name. Um, uh, but their astronomy is the kind of their scientific center. And I looked at their data and I also did research on uh, in uh, local newspapers to look at where the typhoon had been. And then I looked at uh, sort of images of where it was and compared that to Google Maps. And so, the, uh, you know, a lot of uh, in the weeds when I went to Panama, because those are, you know, a little more out of reach. I can't just talk to the local climate compact like I did in Florida. So I called the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute down and went and visited them down in Panama. And they reached out to local scientists and got the best data that could be gotten. So um, yeah, it's really important to me. And on this air quality project, I'm working with universities and professors who are doing air quality studies. So it starts with the science. And I will say that I really don't, um, I'm a real layman. I really don't know a lot about science, um, but it doesn't, uh, but somebody does. And so that's why we work in collaborations. There's some really fantastic data visualizations out there at the moment. And I've seen some gorgeous t-shirts. So I, I think that, uh, you know, creating data in a, in a pretty and, and easy to understand uh, ways uh, a really great way of getting getting information across. Now you've 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 spoken about rising waters. Could you describe a couple of more big projects that you've got coming down the the pipeline? Sure. 
So I, I mentioned the air quality and um, I had been working with a professor and team of students at Olin College. He was doing air quality sensors around under the in the airport neighborhoods around Boston and that unfortunately he just kind of ran out of capacity for the art piece of it but now I'm working with um, University in Maryland and we're going to do kind of pick up where I left off and so we're going to be collecting data from around Baltimore and showing it on a large piece of public art using um, lights as the visualization collecting the ultrafine particles as well not just the background air quality because you can look that up on on a, on a weather app you don't really need something but um, ultrafine particles are extremely local they're from airplanes and buses they're the more toxic particles because they lodge um, in your lungs and they cause all sorts of illnesses like not just asthma but diabetes and heart disease and and other illnesses obviously cancer so um, we'll be able to show in real time when there's a flash of these ultrafine particles and that's also a city with some serious air quality issues because of the not just everything on land but apparently the shipping can, the vessels out in the harbor are just pumping out carbon dioxide and they have a, a landfill that's also a, an incinerator that's in the city and so they have you know there's so many cities with severe severe air quality problems so eventually what i'd like to do is have the pilot and then start to put these in different cities and even have small versions that people can have in their homes um, second one that I, I'm working on is um, an extreme heat project where you'll actually go into an enclosure and feel how hot it will be in the future. And again, it's these and, and, and there will be some action items that people can do in each of these projects. But to uh, there's also an incredible visualization that I want to somehow tie that visualization that NASA did about um increasing temperatures it looks almost like a big urn but increasing temperatures over the the past hundred years and tie that visualization to the extreme heat project uh and again have something which maybe people can have as a, a more locally um reproduce it but that uh again the extreme heat will collect data from other places and do some comparisons but people will have that experience of feeling it in their bodies like oh wow, it's it's gonna be really hot in the future, in this location, and how many days will it be this hot above today's temperature? You know, right now we have, you know, 10 days above this temperature um, in the summer, but in the future we'll have 90 days above this temperature. Now there was a fantastic piece of work uh, that the Met Office and Oxford University did, oh, it's got to be about 15 years ago now, which was uh, mapping temperature changes over the whole of the UK for the next 100 years. And it was an absolutely fascinating tool. You could you could look what the, the weather was going to be like on your birthday in 100 years time and, uh, you know, whether it was likely to be a heat wave or or what have you it was uh it was really worth looking at so i'll i think what we'll have to do is we'll have to, to I, I need to remind myself exactly what that project was see if it's still live and i'll put a link out for anyone who's who's interested now great susan you've been working in this space for for 20 years 
in your opinion, over this time, has the conversation on climate change moved on? So, um, actually, I was an architect for over 20 years, but I didn't really start working on climate until um, I read Hot, Flat and Crowded and An Inconvenient Truth. I shouldn't say that. I did some projects, um, some public art projects when I was younger and then uh, in my 20s. and uh, a little bit along the way, but really I, I read those two books and I say that people don't respond to data, but I do think of myself as kind of an exception because I said, wow, nothing else matters. If I don't work on this, it doesn't matter. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter what else I do. So I started working on climate. I started a green practice. That's when I discovered that, wow, um, I respond to data, but other people don't because I couldn't get people to buy even the simplest changes, even an LED light bulb, it was 2007, 2008, nobody was buying anything. Um, and so I started at that point, and I would say that particularly in the US, the level of denial was shocking. Um, people, I would say maybe 70% of people didn't believe in climate change. I'm thinking, how can you not believe in science? Science is science, it's not a belief. Um, and that was when I said, oh my gosh, we need a sea change. We need a culture change. People have to be thinking differently. They have to understand this on a really intuitive level and they have to be engaged. And um, because things have become uh, in our face and unavoidable, we have now shifted to over 70%. If you look at the, the Yale study, uh, they do, um, uh, poll U.S. opinions about climate change and over 70% of Americans, and I use us as sort of the worst case scenario, uh, now believe that, that climate change is um, an urgent problem, uh, but still not 100% of them think that we should be actually doing something urgently about it. So there's been a sea change, but I will also say that people have gone from denial because they didn't believe the science to people are in denial sometimes for political reasons or because it's just too overwhelming and frightening and so um they the the messaging is so critical and the engagement part is so critical because even if people understand that this is an urgent problem they still won't think about it if you're not communicating it in the right way and and does this cut across party lines or is there definite um, a, a definite difference in 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 the the attitudes of of people in different political parties. There's a definite difference. So you might you know it's probably a hundred percent on our what we call you know our blue states. Um, but overall, there are many many more Republicans who were questioning the existence of climate change who now at least agree that it exists. So the shift has come across the board, although. Uh, not equally across party lines. Um, working with artists is, is is a fantastic way of of raising awareness. But how do you actually move on to the the next step? How do you get people to take action? How do you get people to take those actions home with them? So we have everybody make a commitment in the moment, and because they are typically working in a group making that commitment with other people as witnesses is helpful. It makes it more real to somebody. It makes them feel accountable. 
when we have the opportunity to do the kind of consulting where there's follow-up, um, then it, it, it's even uh, better because they can report back. With the Do One Action campaign, that's more of a sort of a public outreach component, but then people post it on their social media. And so saying it out loud is the first step and um, talking about what can be done. So in order to make a commitment, people have to understand what they can do. So there's a whole educational component in that. And it's like, oh, I didn't realize that if I eat less red meat, that will actually make an, an impact. Or I didn't realize that idling my car is really bad for the environment. Um, or I didn't know that I could find a transportation app near me. So you know, part of it is the education process and the other part is, is stating it out loud and then kind of being witnessed. But we do like the opportunity to be working with organizations, so there's some follow-up to that. And have you got a particular truth hammer to drive things home for, for climate change skeptics? Is there a particular fact or, or trend or, or a piece of data or event that actually convinces these skeptics to, to change their minds? It's kind of shocking, but when people have a belief system, they'll look at the same data and they'll use it to reinforce what they already believe. And so I have given up on trying to convince people uh, using data, and it's more of the reality check of, okay, here is where the water will be. And somehow saying that is um, more impactful than trying to convince them of the, of the metal level. Um, and the other thing is uh, what we definitely see is people with children and grandchildren will come to the table much sooner. There's, there's definite data um, that talking about climate change is really effective. And so uh, it wouldn't seem like just having the conversation is, but what we're hearing over and over again from scientists and activists is keep talking about it. That is creating the movement even if people are disagreeing with you. Do you have a, a favorite action or, or aggregation project? Climate Action Now looks looks really interesting. Oh, um, not really. I think they're all good. I think my favorite one of the moment is the one that I'm working with. <laughs> and, uh, you know, three. There's a consultant's answer there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we just, you know, it it, it takes everybody. It, uh, just the the more the better. There there um, there are some organizations accused of greenwashing with businesses, but even that, you're talking about it, you're making it sound like it's on your radar, even if you're not doing much yet. I think it's all important. And you're building expectation. You know, that's the the greenwashing is a double-edged sword because if you are greenwashing there is an expectation that you are going to follow through on on promises so you know I, I do think that even greenwashing has its has its place I like that I'm going to keep that in mind <laughs> now when you're talking to young people is there a sense of, of resignation there with them are they resigned to client client uh, to, sorry climate chaos how engaged are they? Do they feel they can make a difference? Well, I have a little bit of a selective audience, um, but I would say that they are deeply worried 
I, I don't know, resigned kind of varies. The ones who are working on it are wanting to work on it intensively. Um, they, they understand that it's a profound problem. I was shocked when I did a seminar um, at Emerson College a couple of years ago, and some of these kids were, they were studying sustainability development goals. They were um, still somewhat, maybe it wasn't that particular group, but some students who I was kind of shocked were really very unaware of it because that's so unusual these days. But I would say um, the, the vast majority who, at least who I encounter, um, are quite committed to doing something about it. But they are resigned to it happening and to things being ugly. And um, there's a good part about it, which is they're much less materialistic, I think, than, than our generation was. That's very true. Um, if you could have an hour with one individual to, to talk to them about climate change, who would it be? And I think we'll exclude George Clooney and, and Brad Pitt's pit from this. So who'd, who do you think would actually uh, be able to take this message and, and, and run with it? You know, I probably have to say Al Gore. I know that that is sort of a, a, a tired name at this point in the space, but he has just done so much and he really ignited the movement in this this country. And, and Bill McKibben is pretty amazing too. Um, he, you know, he he uh, has basically worked himself to death on on climate action. But both of them are inspiring figures. Um, with the new administration you've got in the United States, are you starting to see substantial amounts of investment coming into the climate change space? From the government? Yeah. Well, we're really hampered by um, by our Senate. You know, uh, we just, the, uh, the political situation here is absurd. We have a, a minority-run country at this point. And um, as much as, we, we are seeing some, but not to the scale that we had hoped and not the kind of action that we hoped. And now they're litigating, now there's climate litigation where um, oil companies and lobbyists are using the courts to try to shut down um, climate change investment and action in this country. So it's extremely disturbing. Um, it's, well, it's beyond disturbing. And, and you know, speaking of Al Gore, we kind of speculate, well, let's see, if the election had actually gone to him like it should have, would it have been better for the environment or less good because he wouldn't have been able to focus on it 100% and he still wouldn't have gotten it done in office or would he have gotten it done in office? It's kind of one of those things you can never know. It's, uh, yeah, it's it's it, it's quite chilling. Um, let me cheer you off a bit with the story, Susan. Um, when I was working in the City of London, I was doing a lot of work on, on green roofs and green roofs were uh, particular, po particularly popular for a, for a while in the city. Architects liked them, liked them because they uh, added interest to buildings. Uh, us planners loved them because uh, they actually controlled uh, flood, localised flood events in the city because if you've got a, a green roof on a, a building it's like a giant sponge and it soaks up 
the water and it attenuates rain flow to the the drains and i was on a particular green roof in the in the heart of the city i think it was the the museum of london green roof and i was looking into the street and i was thinking why on earth did london when it built its sewers not separate sewage from rainwater because the rainwater could have just been diverted directly into the into the Thames and then I had a revelation because the the sewage system in London was built in the the late 19th century and at that time there were something like five million horses working in London uh, so any rainwater coming off the streets was just as dirty as a sewage then I got thinking about this a bit more and I realized that uh, in 1905 there were five million horses in London and by 1920 they had virtually all gone and if you think of the amount of money invested in horses at the time um, there were the, the the stables, there were the, the feedstock people, there were the knackers yards, there were the saddlers, the carriage makers, this huge industry supporting horses and it disappeared very rapidly because the internal combustion engine came, came in, it was a, a better and a, a cleaner technology. Now just think if the horse lobby had the same power as the internal combustion engine lobby today, we'd still have horses. <laughs> That's probably true. Absolutely. <laughs> so there we are. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, um, I'm afraid that time has caught up with this. I know that some of you still got questions to ask. Please, please do contact Susan to continue this discussion. You can email us and we'll pass your questions on. Um, we're also going to be posting a recording of this presentation online in the next couple of days so you can revisit what Susan has said. It just remains for me to thank members of the FS Club for making today possible. I would also urge you to keep an eye on our forthcoming events page for more webinars which include China fintech opportunities and challenges, employee share schemes and the impact of inflation and carbon emission accounts and data sets for global corporates. You can catch up with all our previous webinars on YouTube or our new Pizzazz TV channel. We hope to see you again soon. Susan, thank you so much. Goodbye. Thank you, Simon, and thank you everybody for listening.